politicians end up becoming more responsive to women, even though it's not the case that they care more about women. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequalitox. Asad Leakat just completed his PhD in public policy from Harvard University, focusing on development economics and political economy. He's affiliated with the Institute for Development and Economic Alternatives and the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan. He's joining the Navi Economics team at Facebook this month as a research scientist, where he will be doing research on digital currencies and financial inclusion in developing countries. We talked about the research he conducted in Pakistan, where he investigated whether politicians know enough about voters to adequately represent them. So in this podcast, we talk about the different factors behind the persistence or the increase in inequality in different countries. And one of the explanations is that the fact that there is something in the political process itself that creates or sustain economic inequality. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about the political economy literature and especially your work about politicians' accountability. Why do you think this is an important perspective to try to understand the evolution of inequality? Let me start with kind of the you know, very broad question of what affects public good provision in developing countries, right? And, and, and the reason public goods are particularly important for inequality in developing countries is because it's often the case that the rich find a way to provide these goods privately for themselves. And so if public goods are, are provided in an inefficient way, uh, it's the poor that suffer more, right? And so in development economics, which is my field, has kind of concerned itself with the question of, of what affects public good provision uh, in, a, in a big way. And kind of the, you know, the previous work focuses a lot on, on, on some determinants of, of public good provision, such as uh, corruption, uh, clientelism, where clientelism means kind of uh, quid pro quo relationships between politicians uh, and voters, where they're provided kind of some private good or some vote buying in exchange for their votes and the public good doesn't end up happening. Or, you know, things like the effectiveness of state personnel. Uh, so it could be the case that there's something about the, you know, the, the nature of the bureaucratic state that's not able to provide uh, these, these public goods in, in an efficient way. Uh, now, these explanations are all kind of true to some extent, and we have a lot of evidence on them. But these are also kind of deep structural problems that are very hard to fix. And so there is a parallel literature on the role of information in democratic accountability. This kind of literature is, is thinking about what are the ways in which the flow of information or the stock of information uh, in an economy, how can that promote or, or constrain accountability? And so the literature here mostly kind of focuses on whether voters know enough about politicians to hold them accountable, right? The idea here is that are democratic systems kind of functioning in a way that allow voters to find out what politicians are doing, how they're acting, are they providing the right kind of public goods that we want, such that they can then sanction them the next time an election comes around. Um, and we have mixed evidence there on whether, you know, this kind of information is constraining accountability or not. Um, what I focus on instead is whether politicians know enough about citizens to adequately represent them. Uh, and this is important because without this knowledge, even the well-meaning politicians would be unable to provide the public goods that citizens desire, right? So in a sense, I'm investigating an even simpler cause of bad public good provision, which is that the politicians who are making these decisions may not even know what, the, what are the public goods that citizens want. Um, and so they may be providing the wrong things. And so you do something completely insane, which is an experiment with politicians themselves. 
when I saw that the first time, I was, I was really blown away about how was it even possible to implement that in practice? So you design and implement this large field experiment in Pakistan. How did it happen in practice? What were the steps that allowed you to implement this, this experiment and test this idea? Uh, so I think I think in practical terms, it just involved a lot of field work and a lot of relationship building in the field, right? Which is how I think a lot of uh, development economics today happens, which is you build relationships, you kind of, you know, you do a lot of field work, which involves, you know, a lot of qualitative field work to figure out whether a problem that you think exists actually exists, what are the underlying causes, and then you try to figure out some, you know, usually experimental, but also non-experimental way to collect data uh, in which you can kind of unearth those that, that kind of causal mechanism in a nice way. So in my case, I basically spent, you know, uh, a couple of years of my PhD collecting data, talking to politicians and figuring out, is this problem that I think exists, does it actually exist, right? And so I did a lot of qualitative field work that I, you know, in economics, it's kind of, uh, you know, there's less space for it. So I kind of, I, I wrote a book chapter in a political science book on that. After all the, all the qual field work, the gist of it was, let's now do these kind of large surveys of citizens and politicians to kind of figure out what is it that citizens want and then compare it to what is it that politicians think citizens want, right? And then compare these two things to figure out how accurate politicians' beliefs are, right? So to make it more tangible, what I did was I kind of asked citizens, do you prefer X or Y on a particular policy issue, right? So you kind of make these binary trade-offs, things that citizens are often kind of choosing between. Then I go to these politicians in my sample and I ask them, well, what proportion of citizens do you think prefer option X to option Y, right? And so using these two quantities, I can compare them and I can kind of, you know, think about accuracy in a number of ways. Um, and so that's kind of where I start off with to establish that these politicians, in fact, have kind of very inaccurate beliefs uh, about, about, about citizen preferences. So you documented that they actually have some misperceptions about the preferences of their constituency, right? So the simplest way to think about this accuracy is, whether the politician can accurately guess which of the two policies is preferred by the majority, right? So can they say policy X is the majority's preference or policy Y is the majority's preference, right? And if you think about like, if these politicians were randomly guessing how often they would be right, they'd be right about half the time, right? If they were just flipping a coin. So I find that the politicians in my sample are right about 59% of the time which is better than random, but not by the margin, you know, that we expect kind of uh, our elected representatives to be. Now, this is, of course, kind of a very crude measure. So I also calculate this distance kind of a more, you know, uh, more fine grained measure of what is the distance between the actual proportion of citizens that prefer a policy and what politicians think this proportion is, right? So this, is, this gives you a raw distance. And then again, in a similar way, you can benchmark this distance against how well a random guesser would do. Right, uh, and so I, so I come up with this accuracy score, which is basically zero if uh, politicians are as good as random, and hundred if politicians are perfectly accurate. And I find again that the average politician in my sample scores about fifteen on this on this scale. So they're far closer to this random guessing benchmark than they are to perfect accuracy. Right. So this is really showing that there is a large information gap. Right. These politicians really don't have a. a um, a lot of information on, on what citizens want. There is some underlying variation that makes sense, right? That also gives me kind of, you know, uh, a credibility in the measure such that these local issues that these local politicians deal with on a very regular basis, beliefs on those are more accurate than kind of higher tier issues that politicians deal with less frequently. Uh, but even on those lo local issues, their beliefs are kind of far closer to the random guessing measure. 
Can you give us an example of these local issues versus national issue, for instance? So one kind of trade-off for very local public goods is the trade-off between uh, street lighting versus small water filtration plants, right? So, so you can spend some local money on setting up these street lights that will ensure safety, that will be good for these households. Or the water quality is often bad, uh, so you set up these like very local water, small water filtration plants that will provide clean drinking water to a particular street or sort of set of streets. So that's kind of a local public service delivery. A higher tier kind of good, you uh, know, is do you want kind of like um, uh, spending on uh, these uh, local uh, healthcare centers or large specialized hospitals, right? Do you want do you, do you want more small hospitals or, or very large specialized hospitals? So there, there are these, some of these trade-offs that these politicians deal with on a very regular basis. And so once you document this information gap between what the citizens want and what the politicians think the citizens want, what is your informational treatment? How do you implement that? We have an information gap. We could say that we have kind of solved the riddle in itself, right? We've shown that this information gap matters. But in reality, that's not what it's showing, right? It could be the case that this information gap exists because these politicians don't care. It could be the case that they deliberately don't make any effort to acquire this information. And so giving them information wouldn't really matter, right? And so that's why it's important to establish this causal relationship between information and their responsiveness, right? To see if it even matters for policy. And so for that reason, I, you know, using the same data that I've collected uh, from these citizen surveys, I design this informational treatment in which I go to these politicians and I tell them what citizens think on each of these each of these nine issues, right? So I conduct this kind of field experiment uh, in partnership with a large political party in Pakistan, and I have a sample of 653 politicians. Um, and so I randomize these politicians into either receiving this accurate information or receiving no information at all. And then these treatment politicians in my sample are further cross-randomized into receiving the preferences of either men or women or both, right? Because I care about whether politicians know more about men or women differently and whether they respond more to men or women. And then importantly, uh, you know, this is important for kind of learning about experimental design. I'm also doing kind of a within politician randomization, right? So as I mentioned, there are these nine issues that I'm dealing with, these nine trade-offs. So for each treatment politician, I'm also randomizing which six out of nine issues politicians get information on, right? And so there's some going to be some observations that are going to be control observations within each treatment politician. What this does is this allows me to look at politicians' responsiveness on particular issues separately. And it also gives me a lot more power than I would have if I was randomizing simply at, at the politician level. La minute technique. In this podcast, researchers take one minute to explain one technical aspect of their work. I wanted you to maybe explain what is the intuition behind this block randomization that you implement in your setting. So when we're thinking about randomization in general, one thing that randomization does is that it achieves balance between treatment and control groups on average. It ensures that the treatment group and the control group looks, we hope, exactly the same. Uh, and then we give treatment to one group to see differences after treatment. And so randomization achieves this balance on average, but you can get unlucky in any particular draw. So your experiment is one particular draw. It can be unbalanced on average. So blocking this randomization makes it more likely that your treatment and control groups are balanced on these baseline covariates. And so it, therefore it minimizes the variance of your estimator of treatment effects. So in practice, what it looks like is that instead of kind of having a general pool of your of your sample and you draw a, a random treatment person and a random control person, 
what you end up doing instead is you end up throwing them into blocks or strata that look like each other. And so when you pick a treatment and control person within groups that look like each other, you're really minimizing the noise and the variance. So in my case, I'm throwing them into these blocks, firstly by geographical region, and then by the type of position they serve in. So I'm really picking these treatment control people that are very similar based on those variables. And so that's kind of minimizing the noise. Once you implement this randomization, one could imagine that politicians are going to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? And so what is your trick to really capture the political responsiveness to the information treatment that you put in place? So the kind of concern that you were voicing that was, in fact, the key concern that I had while designing this experiment, because I, I want a measure of responsiveness that maps onto something real in the world, right? That it, it, it means this politician is taking some action that is real and is not simply what we call an experimental demand effect, that an experimenter came to me and then told me what they want to hear and so on, so I'm going to go ahead and do it, right? So the way I achieve this is by partnering with this political party and devising this policy recommendation mechanism. And so this is also based on kind of my field work in that I observed that these local politicians are mostly influencing policy by making recommendations to higher tier party leadership, right? And so because they don't always have all the financial resources they need to implement things on the ground, And so they're kind of dependent on these transfers from the higher levels. So the way this happens organically is they need something on the ground. They're going to pick up the phone or go visit their party leader and tell them what's needed on the ground. And then kind of this negotiation whereby this allocation happens. And so this is very informal. And the party is kind of also frustrated with the informal nature of this a little bit. And so that's why they were willing to partner with me in this. So we devised this kind of formal policy recommendation uh, mechanism whereby the party sends its local politicians an official letter uh, that's signed by the district chairman of the party. And it's, it's, it's saying, uh, we want you to make your recommendations on these issues. And we promise that we will take these recommendations into account when we make future decisions. And so it, they get this letter, they, they make these recommendations on this policy recommendation form. And then, you know, some of these happen to be treatment politicians, some of these happen to be control politicians. So that's how I'm able to look at responsiveness. That this somewhat addresses the concern of experimental demand effects, right? Uh, in the sense that this is coming from the party and it goes to the party. One additional thing that I do is, because this is happening kind of very close to treatment, for a random subset of these politicians, I have somebody from the party office call them a few days after treatment to kind of ask them for their recommendations in you know using different wording, Uh, from a different office of the party, and these results also look very similar. In, in any kind of experimental design, you want to make sure that your outcome variable is mapping onto something in the real world. So I look at these recommendations on some of these local issues on which I do have budgetary data at the local level, right? On these street lights and water filtration plants. And I see that the areas in which these politicians are recommending these street lights, that maps on fairly closely to the budgetary allocations that were made in the past, right? And so this is not a treatment effect, but this is kind of correlating past outcome data in terms of financial allocations to, to this kind of outcome variable. So that's what gives me some confidence in my, in my outcome variable. Ideally, I think it would be the case that if I had budgetary allocations at this local level that are made by an individual politician that aren't kind of influenced by bureaucracy or by groupthink and all of those things. But in some sense, I wanted kind of a proof of concept of this very neat idea of is a politician willing to take an action on this particular issue? In the real world, this decision is influenced by so many factors that that noise uh, gets to would, would likely drown out any, any kind of treatment effect. And so after the information about the preference of the constituency and the citizens is revealed, what happens? What do you observe? 
So I find in my control group that these politicians recommend what the majority wants about 52.5% of the time. And they're recommending the majority's preferred policy slightly more often than half the time. So they're not very responsive politicians. But these treatment politicians, so politicians who receive this information, are about 8 percentage points, or about 14.5% of the control need, more likely to recommend the majority's preferred policy, right? So what this establishes is a causal relationship between politicians' knowledge of citizen preferences and their actions, and shows that politicians' beliefs are acting as a constraint on their ability to act in line with what citizens want. The more informed politicians are, the more likely they are to act in line with, with, with citizen preferences. And there's something really intriguing in your findings, and I found it really intriguing given my interest in gender economics in general, is the fact that politicians are more responsive to information about women's preferences. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, sometimes these politicians are getting information on men's preferences and sometimes on women's preferences. And these politicians are almost twice more responsive to information on women's preferences compared to men's preferences. And at first glance, this is surprising, right? Uh, especially in a context such as Pakistan, where women are largely absent from, from the political space, right? And so the, the colloquial wisdom is that these politicians don't really care about women. And so I think why this happens in this case is because politicians think they know less about women. So this is kind of thinking along a Bayesian framework, which is that if you are not very confident in your prior beliefs about something, and somebody comes and delivers, you know, delivers some information, you're going to put a lot more weight, you're going to give a lot more credibility to that new information compared to if you're, if you have very strongly held beliefs. So I find that these politicians are equally misinformed about men and women, but they think they know a lot more about men. So when somebody comes and tells them, this is what the men in your area think, they're not giving it as much weight as they're giving way to the, to the information on women's preferences. And so, you know, so that's kind of a, you know, a, a weird twisted way in which these politicians end up becoming more responsive to women, even though it's not the case that they care more about women, right? And so I also have survey data showing that it's not the case that these politicians are actively trying to discriminate in favor of women. This is coming about as a result of their, of their underconfident beliefs about women. So the fact that politicians who are even in representative democracies, not exactly like citizens. The fact that these politicians are less confident about their belief for the preferences of their constituency, what does it say about marginalized populations in general, whose preferences are less likely to be mediated and represented in, in parliaments, for instance? One thing is these populations that are less likely to contact politicians and less likely to get their views heard. Uh, this may be saying that these politicians are not very likely to act in line with the preferences of that particular set of the population. This could be racial minorities, this could be women uh, in Pakistan, this could also be religious minorities. But it's, it's also giving this hopeful finding that if we are able to bridge these informational shortfalls, if we're able to build these informational channels, then it is quite possible that politicians become very responsive to women's preferences and, and to other uh, populations. And this is this is particularly hopeful because some of the other ways of, of bridging this gap are very hard to achieve, right? So one way, you know, the literature has shown that if you have more women as, as politicians, then, then policy does shift in line with, with women's preferences, right? 
But that kind of change is very hard to achieve. That involves kind of new laws, that involves like a whole structural change in the way society thinks about politics. And so that's something we should aspire towards. But in the short run, if we can make it easier for women to go and talk to politicians, that would also kind of shift policy in line with women's preferences. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if you had a particular recommendation for our listeners of a book, a movie, a podcast or something that inspired you. So one such book that kind of really inspired me was it's called Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo. It's a journalistic account of life in an informal uh, Mumbai slum settlement. Catherine Booz is a journalist who, who lived in, in Mumbai for a while. And, and this provides a lot of kind of detail on the life of these slum dwellers in the way that economists are not usually exposed to. Even in field work, we're kind of chasing data and we're not kind of chasing these stories often. So this book, I think, is a great example of how we can learn about the economic and social lives of the poor and the force with which inequality kind of hits people in their daily lives. If my recommendation is not enough, I should also mention that this book was once recommended to me by Abhijit Banerjee. Uh, so that adds kind of further force to this uh, to this recommendation. Thank you so much, Asad, for your time. Thank you, Prem. Thank you for having me. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van Effenter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.